1: Hi, everyone. This is your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia, from Stanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Rana Ramitsky and Leah Bustan. Rana is Professor of Economics and the Senior Associate Dean of the Social Sciences here at Stanford. He is Professor of Economics at Princeton University, where she also serves as the Director of the Industrial Relations Section. The two of them are the authors of a recently published book called Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. Today, we're going to be talking um, with them about the book and about their careers. Let me say hi to them. How are you, Ran, Leah? Thanks for being here. Hi, Javier. Thanks for having us.
2: It's great to be here.
1: Great. Why don't we start um, with knowing a bit more about your your path? So would you mind telling us where you're from? How did you end up being interested in economics and economic history? What was the path to end up writing this very interesting book on uh, immigration?
2: I think let's let Ron start because he himself is an immigrant.
0: All right. So... so uh... I uh, grew up in Jerusalem and uh, my mom was a, an elementary school teacher. My dad, like an IT person, computer programmer in the era before computers were uh, a big thing. And uh, my they were both born in Israel, but my grandparents all came from Poland and other parts of Eastern Europe in the late 1930s. And uh, subsequently lost all their family in the Holocaust, um, including uh, parents, siblings, in my grandfather's case, including his wife and and son. And then they moved to Palestine, uh, current day Israel. From my mother's side, they moved to, uh, they founded the kibbutz you know, community based on uh, egalitarian principles in the south of, of Israel. From my father's side, they moved to uh, Jerusalem. And uh, and that was kind of like my, you could say, my early interest in uh, income inequality and in uh, immigration. Uh, you can trace it probably to to, to that, uh, uh, you know, my, my entire life was around immigration and income inequality and, and things like that. And I was interested in school. I liked math. I liked physics. Uh, but I also really enjoyed the social sciences and and history. And uh, I liked the rigor of physics, but I kind of wanted more to apply to more social uh, problems. And so I kind of fell in love with, with economics as, as an undergraduate student uh, at the Hebrew uh, University. And then I went on to do my uh, PhD at Northwestern University. Not actually thinking uh, economic history is something that I really like to do, but I was fortunate to be in a program where economic history is incredibly strong. And uh, in particular, you know, if you listen if you ever listen to Joel Mokir, you know, he can convince you that the fluctuations of the price of butter in the 14th century is the most fascinating things that uh, you will ever ever hear about. And so he's like, you know, he's Passion is contagious, and and after taking his class, there was nothing I wanted to do uh, more than economic history. And and beyond that, you know, talk with Joe and Joel, uh, the the approach of economic history to take seriously the institutional background and the context, uh, 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 rather than asking timeless questions, but take the particularities and context into account, resonated with me uh, uh, a great deal when I when I went to study. Uh, income inequality and later with Leah immigration. So that's like in a nutshell.
2: Well, and for me, um, I grew up uh, outside of Boston, um, went to the public high school in Lexington, Mass. And I was very lucky there to have a long tradition of policy debate uh, at school. And My parents told me when I was a freshman in high school, you have to try the debate class because we know you and you argue about everything. Um, This is going to fit with, you know, your interests. And of course, I argued with them and said, no, (laughs) I don't want to do debate. None of my friends are doing debate. Um, And I gave it a try and it turned out to be – really my lifelong passion and what led to the career that I have now. Policy debate is a very weird activity. I don't know if it happens outside of the U.S., but the goal in policy debate is not to make a beautiful argument with a clear and convincing speech, but it's actually to collect as much information and evidence as you can in support of your argument. Um, And uh, during the uh, academic year, all of the high school policy debaters are working on the same topic. So happened to be that my junior year of high school, we were working on the topic of should we substantially reform the immigration system in the U.S. And um, so I spent my whole junior year of high school researching different immigration policies. Um, when I got to undergrad at Princeton, um, I actually chose to go to Princeton because they have a policy school here. And I thought that I was going to major in public policy, but I took an econometrics class in my sophomore year that was called Applied Econometrics. We were actually using real data for the first time. And I went to my professor and I said, how do I do this over the summer uh, in Washington? helping out people working on public policy. And he said to me, well, why would you go to Washington? Why don't you just stay here and work with me? Um, And his argument to me was, you need to learn something before you can contribute to policy. Like, you're a sophomore in college. Maybe you should learn some more econometrics and learn some more data analysis. That made sense to me. So I thought I would defer going to Washington and I would learn more economics first. And, of course, I haven't stopped learning economics. I've just, you know, maybe... Uh, going to Washington sometime in the future, but I guess I don't know enough yet to do that. So I'm still, um, you know, doing data analysis and research um, based on that very serendipitous interaction that I had. Um, And so Ron and I met um, soon after we both finished our PhD programs and we've been working together ever since.
1: That's very interesting. You know, one thing that um, I find particularly interesting it's interesting but also inspiring about what you're saying is the role of of mentors um and and it seems that this path that you're describing can be perceived in the book that you wrote so there's something that uh drove my attention i was reading the book which is that although this is a history of immigration it's not exactly structured as a chronological story right it's rather um, an argument that it's trying to um, to contrast and to confront what you call myths on immigration. So I'm going to ask you about what those myths are in a bit, but before that I I would like to hear if you like your own research and you've been working on this agenda for for probably a decade now. What are those priors that you had considering that you well ran had personal experiences as, uh, as an immigrant uh, but Leah was thinking about this since uh, she was in in high school then like what were your priors and how does your own research has changed the way you think about about this topic uh, if Leah, you mind yeah, to you me. can start run sorry
0: so I don't know that we had a very st- that I had very strong priors, as much as uh, it was puzzling to us to how uh, people talk very strongly about uh, how immigration in the U.S. looked like without uh, that much supporting evidence. And so people would say that, uh, uh, well, you know, immigrants today are very different than immigrants in the past. In the past, you know, those European immigrants came with nothing and then they really rose to riches very quickly but today they aren't doing very well we are like oh that's that's interesting is that is there evidence for for, for that and uh, how the today somehow immigrants are stuck in poverty and they uh, never able to catch up or assimilate uh, but in the past people did so better and so we were like oh that's again an interesting argument but we don't know that we have seen evidence for that and so we decided to uh, subject all these uh, myths, if you want, all these claims into uh, rigor, more like data collection and analysis. And in the process, we learned that, uh, in fact, there is a lot more similarity between the past and today than there are differences. And so the immigrants uh, integrate into the economy and society today just as quickly as they did in the past, and their children uh, rise in the same Pace as they did in the past. And so, a lot more similarities. I'll let Leah maybe say a few, you know, like elaborate a bit more. But I guess to, to me, it was like how similar the past uh, is for today. And so, uh, um, uh, you know, the American dream today is is just as real as it was 100 years ago, rather than this uh, idea that today things are worse than they were in the past.
1: Right. Can I ask you about that, Leah, as well? And would you mind then to? be more extensive about what are these myths that are around in the public opinion and how exactly you're thinking about them?
2: Well, I think that um, one myth uh, that I think I shared, you're talking about priors, um, is that immigrants in the past uh, who came primarily from Europe, we think of them as like the Ellis Island generation, moved up very quickly. Whereas immigrants today... uh, come from all over the world, including some very poor sending countries in Latin America or in Asia. And if they do move up, they move up more slowly. Um, I think I had this vision in mind because if you go to high school in the U.S., you hear a lot about this Ellis Island generation. You... You know, you see the pictures of the Statue of Liberty and the idea of give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. So this nostalgic view of immigrants making it on their own um, and building the country is, um, is part of the history that we learn. But I also think that the academic work was pointing in that direction too, before we were able to continue to add more data to the picture. Um, So I remember learning um, some early work in labor economics, um, trying to study this question. And those papers didn't have um, all the data that you would need to answer the question. Ideally, you're able to follow people over time and say, here's how an immigrant's doing on, you know, year one after they've just arrived. Here's how they're doing on year five. Here's how they're they're doing on year 10. But without panel data where you're following people over time, that's very hard to do. And so, if we only have data from one time period, ultimately we're going to be comparing immigrants who recently arrived to immigrants who arrived a long time ago. And those could be very different people. In fact, it turns out that they might be Mexican farm laborers for the recent arrivals and then German scientists for the long term migrants. Um, and so, those are not groups that we ought to be comparing. Um, but I had seen that work and it you know, it seemed to fit with the nostalgic view. So I think I held that myth in my mind somewhere when we got started on the work. And what we found was that uh, the Ellis Island generation was not doing as well as the myth would have it. Um, So uh, they did move up a little bit uh, relative to um, their position when they first arrived in the country. But even after 20 years in the U.S., the degree to which that first generation moved up was pretty slow and not that different from immigration today. And in fact, a lot of the change happens with the children of immigrants. It's the second generation. And then if you think about these biases that come from thinking back over a long period of time, if you think back over a century, it's really hard in your mind to differentiate the immigrants from the kids of immigrants. It's all like a hazy, oh, this happened in the past, a long time ago. Even when I think about my own grandfather, I think of him as an immigrant, but he's actually the child of immigrants. And it was my great-grandfather who moved over. Um, But when we think about immigrants today, we have a much more nuanced and detailed picture because that's what's happening in our world around us right now.
1: And so regarding that... Um, why is that the case? Why is it that you start to see mobility taking place more than anything in the second generation? Could you expand on that, Leah?
2: Well, um, I mean, first to just sort of talk about the facts um, about the children of immigrants, um, what really struck us, I would say almost more than any of our other findings, is how similar the pattern of upward mobility is for the children of immigrants in the past and today. So think about kids who are raised pretty poor. Like let's say they're raised at the 25th percentile of the income distribution. Children of immigrants from almost every sending country in the world today and in the past are moving up more than children of the U.S. born who are raised at the same point. So, children of the US born might be getting to the 45th percentile, and children of immigrants might be getting to the 51st or 52nd percentile. Um, so, they're starting in the same place, but they're moving up more. Um, so, that's the basic fact that we were pretty amazed to see, um, especially the similarity between past and present. And when we started to look into why, which is your question, you know, why does this happen? Um, we found a Uh, a striking pattern that much of it has to do with location choice and geography. Immigrants tend to settle in places with a lot of jobs around. And turns out that those places were areas that offered upward mobility for their own kids and also for other kids that lived in those regions as well. Um, So what's special about immigrants is that in a way, they're more footloose. They're more able to assess the different location options and choose the one that offers the most scope for upward mobility.
1: So there's something that um, I find interesting about like your answer, which is that it seems that the background of these migrants is either irrelevant or is not a uh, fundamental piece of their success at least at, at an aggregate level is that the case is it or what other features of the immigration process are are fundamental and if you want to predict how well someone is going to do when they arrive to the US um, what would be good predictors of that um, re- does it matter where they come from does it matter their education level I don't know
0: so 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 we find you know in, in the first generation we find that that it does so in the first generation you know how we we say that we don't find this evidence of the the starting at the very bottom and rising very quickly but instead what we find for the first generation the immigrant generation themselves is that immigrants from some countries tended to come here and they kind of start uh, you know their earnings are below the earnings of the US born and then they even 30 years later, maybe they don't fully catch up and they continue to be uh, to lag behind and immigrants and immigrants from other countries, especially say the English speaking countries in Germany, they come to the US and even upon first arrival, they are doing quite well and they are even earning more than the US born and then that stays the same way uh, 30 years later. The, the the striking thing though is that regardless of of how the immigrant generation did, the second generation immigrants from, uh, as Leah said, you know from nearly every sending countries are catching up with the uh, uh, with the U.S. Bo- with the children of the U.S. born, regardless of their starting uh, position. So, like the you know immigrants that are born poor, as Leah said, you know think about it today as you know. Th- Earning like something in the order of thirty thousand dollars per year, so like two spouses who work and earn the minimum wage, the the children of 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 immigrants, uh, of Mexican immigrants and people from El Salvador uh, and Laos. To today, they are uh, doing, you know, they are kind of catching up and end up uh, more likely to move to the middle class than than the children of the U.S. born. Now, of course, there are differences in terms of uh, so if you look at the children of uh, People from uh, China and India—they are doing—they are—they are doing better than the children of immigrants from Mexico. So there is a lot of heterogeneity and variation in how much better the children of immigrants do relative to the children of the U.S. born. But the striking fact is that we don't find immigrant groups that are prone to stay behind always. You know, we find that uh, immigrant—even immigrant groups of. Uh, those groups that are accused of being not able to assimilate very well in the U.S., their children are doing well, uh, and so there is no evidence of uh, of these uh, immigrant groups that are that stay in poverty forever, kind of uh, thing. Yeah,
1: right. And so one of the probably other myths that um, subsist around the idea of immigration that you explored in in the book is that immigrants are harmful in a certain way for for locals, right? Um, what are your findings around that idea? Leah, would you mind?
2: Sure. Um, well, um, being economic historians, um, we looked to answer that question in the past. And we turned to what was really the largest change in US immigration policy in history, um, which was the substantial restriction of the border, you could even say closing of the border in the 1920s. Um, So there have been a number of labor economists who have looked at the question of do immigrants harm natives in the labor market? And they often will turn to natural experiments like this. Um, and usually it's a situation where immigrants are coming in to one labor market, um, for example, the Marial Boatlift from Cuba. In our case, we're looking at a policy that is dramatic and nationwide. So before the border closes, there are around a million immigrants a year coming into the U.S. A million a year, which is really mind-blowing given that the population was smaller then and we have around a million immigrants a year today and after the restriction immigration falls to hundred and fifty thousand a year Um, and what was um, useful for us in terms of getting traction on this problem is that the policy was not uniform for all immigrant groups it was targeted to southern and eastern Europeans so Italians and Poles and Russians had very small quotas after the border was restricted, Um, whereas Brits and Germans and Irish, essentially anyone who wanted to come could come in. The quotas were not even binding for those countries. Um, So what we did was we looked at different cities or different rural areas around the country that were more or less affected by that national policy change. And that essentially comes from the fact that for two places that have a same immigrant share in the population, some places had a lot of Italians and some had a lot of Irish. So if you had a lot of Italians in your population, you were suddenly going to have a big stop in your immigrant inflow. And then we wanted to know what happened to locals. And the bottom line is uh, pretty crazy, but pretty similar to what other people find, um, which is that for local U.S.-born workers, after this immigration stop, there was no increase in occupation-based income scores. So it didn't seem like the local population was gaining um, at all from this slowdown in immigration. Um, So then we tried to figure out why, and it seems like there's basically a lot of ways for firms to adapt. So... They could attract workers from other parts of the country. They could attract Mexicans and Canadians who are actually not restricted by this quota, or they could attract in new capital to substitute. Uh, But they didn't necessarily turn to the local population to substitute. Um, So that piece of uh, the book and our research comes from our own work, but then we wanted to compare past and present. And we find that our results for the 1920s is pretty similar to what people are finding um, for something like the Mariel boatlift in the 1980s um, or for some other sources of experimental variation um, going forward to today. It doesn't seem like people are finding that closing the country to immigration is a benefit to locals.
0: And one of the things that you see is that uh for example, in today's context, is that immigrants kind of come in in either as very educated and they have PhDs or scientists or in high tech and so on, and they... uh, Contribute to innovation uh, in in this country, and they don't crowd out the US born, but rather maybe even open opportunities for the US born. They are more likely to create businesses and so on. And uh, on the other spec part of the spectrum is uh, uh, those who come with little education, maybe even drop drop out of school, uh, and they do the kind of jobs like uh, taking care of the elderly or cleaning or or uh, and. Uh, and uh, the kind of jobs that uh, many US workers uh, don't want to do for the you know for the existing wages and uh, and, and whereas the US uh, populate US born are kind of more in the middle of this uh, two extreme of the of the jobs and so at some level there this idea that uh, the economy is a zero-sum game where if somebody is gaining, somebody else must be losing. That just doesn't seem to be the case, you know, for example, when immigrants and the U.S. born are not uh, perfectly, you know, like substitutable for for, for one another. Uh, it's it's not. And again, it's not to say that we, you know, there are never, you know, there are winners and losers, you know, for every immigration episode. And Lee and I discuss that, that in the book as well. You know, for example, you do have this, uh, you know, Nice paper that in the context of the Soviet Union, you know, when mathematicians were, you know, came from the former Soviet Union to the U.S., uh, they, you know, like the the U.S. born working in mathematics departments uh, were less likely to publish and to get promoted and they were crowded out by by uh, the, the you know U.S. mathematician, so you do have context in which you have some of this crowding out, but but like they have to be very, but, but by and large, we don't find evidence for this uh, zero-sum game of the economy.
1: So let me ask you something that um, goes back to something that Leah mentioned at the beginning when she was um, acknowledging a certain prior that had uh, was in line with the Smiths with. But and my my, my question here is, um, what do you think that these myths are so persistent, I guess? Uh, Of course, it seems that there was uh, a lack of evidence and there was even some research that was supporting some of them. Um, But probably there are additional things and I would like to hear what's your opinion on that. I don't know if you would like to say something about that, Ren.
0: Well, it's it's a good question, Javier. There are there are you know there are a number of reasons. One that comes to mind is uh, it's. Uh it's a topic that generates a lot of emotion, and and everybody has like a personal. You see, I just told you about my family history, and Leah told you about her family history, and uh, and you. It's the kind of topics that tend to get very personal. You hear a story of a family member, or and then uh, and then it gets to you at an emotional level, and you 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 start to think, well, that must be the the, the experience of, of everyone, uh, or you get to see uh, and so it, it, and by the way, it goes both sides. It's not necessarily just. uh, negative stories about immigrants. You also see, oh, look at uh, all this high-tech, look at uh, Google and eBay. All of those were created by by immigrants, so the immigrants must be terrific. And so, but but Leah and I kind of point out in in the book that, uh, you know, when you have 30 million immigrants coming, there will be somebody who is a mass murderer and somebody who is uh, changing the path of U.S. forever. But what about the typical immigrant experience? Those are the ones of a life quietly lived of the teacher next door teacher who has just a, a simple and, and nice uh, life and struggles and challenges and and uh, and 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 we wanted to tell the stories of, of those immigrants not just the the outliers but the average immigrants and for those uh, you know the the our data was helpful in the sense that our data at the end of the day uh, for example the census data that we use at the end of the day it's just a collection of hundreds of thousands of stories you see the person and you see the family in the census records and you see where they lived and how they named their children and who, who they married and and uh, what they what do they do for a living and how much they earn and at the end by linking them over time and by looking at many thousands of them you get the more typical story uh, of an average immigrant rather than the ones who stick uh, you know that are outliers
2: I also think there's a lot of conflict these days about how to interpret American history. Um, More than I've ever remembered, um, this question um, uh, has come up as a dividing line between the left and the right. Um, And one piece of American history that it seems like everyone can agree upon is that immigrants from Ellis Island 100 years ago are good you know, they moved up the economic ladder quickly, they moved into the middle class, they tried to become Americans and culturally assimilate. And so you can hear politicians and pundits as different as former President Barack Obama and commentator Rush Limbaugh, who you would never see in the same, you know, um, ideas space together um, saying very positive things about immigrants in the past. And where the differences come in is on how people think about immigrants today. Um, Are they similar to the Ellis Island generation or are they very different? Um, And so I think we're kind of holding fast to this myth of the Ellis Island generation because it's one of a very vanishingly small number of things that it seems like we can all agree upon um, as a country. And so now Ron and I are here to, in a way, burst that myth and say, well, the Ellis Island generation was not as special as you thought it was. Um, they didn't move up particularly mm-hmm. quickly. They're not that different from immigrants today. Um, and, and so uh, it seems like it's this one kind of piece of American history that people have kept um, kept apart and kept special um, because it's something that we can agree upon.
0: And, and, then, and then to follow up on what Leah just said is that... Uh Part of it is because those immigrants, the Ellis Island generation, a hundred and something years have passed. And so we look at this from this long term perspective of how the Norwegians who came 150 years ago are doing in the US today. And the story looks quite quite great. Whereas when you look at uh, immigrants from Mexico, or uh, they just arrived uh, 10 years ago, clearly the, this is not comparing apples to apples, looking at the Norwegians who arrived 150 years ago with the Mexican who arrived today. And so part, one of the, I guess, messages of our book is that you should think about uh, immigration and immigration policy in generations, not in years. <laughs> and when you do that and you look at the children of immigrants and you learn all the lessons uh, from that past wave of mass migration, how it eventually ended up doing, then you kind of get a more positive, happy picture for immigrants than if you look at them uh, when they are first generation struggling and, and so on.
1: Uh, so now that you described your book as this essential contribution to what you could think of as the soul of uh, of the US, right? Which is uh, like migration, at least an important part of that um, how special do you think that, um, uh, the American cases, and I'm here asking you to speculate a bit, but I also know that you've been working on other, uh, episodes of, uh, of similar types of immigration, how much your results are, uh, American story or, and, or how much of that could potentially be, Uh, insightful for other historical episodes.
2: So um, in order to engage in the same kind of data collection effort that we've done, you need to be able to follow people over time throughout their career and also follow parents to their children. So that's been a relatively recent breakthrough for economics research in the US and around the world. Uh, So there have been other research teams who've been looking into similar questions um, in Canada and Australia, so other kind of um, settler economies, but also in Europe, um, in uh, France, Germany, the UK, in the Netherlands and Sweden. Um, And that would be for more recent Uh, immigration episodes. And so we're only just starting to see the results roll in. Some of those papers have been published, some of them are working papers. Um, So, you know, statements that I'll make about that literature are definitely subject to revision, but it seems like people are finding pretty similar patterns of upward mobility in the settler economies like Canada and Australia and at least for Western Europe, it seems like there's less upward mobility for immigrants in France and in the UK, for example, uh, today. Um, so there's a nice paper on that comparative case in the Economic Journal. Um, so I've started to think and speculate about, you know, what is it about American society that seems to be so effective uh, at integrating immigrants, um, especially because there aren't a lot of government programs to integrate immigrants, you know. So if you look at the European case, it seems like they have more uh, programs to learn the language, you know, to help you find work um, and, you know, to maybe resettle immigrants to certain locations. Um, They're taking more active steps, yet it doesn't seem like they're as effective um, as the United States and Canada. Um, So, you know, to start to think about what are the kind of, ingredients in the special sauce um something i'm interested in for the future
0: and and to add a a note uh, to to what leah said uh, from historical perspective europe for many you know for all this time period we were talking about in the in this 80s island uh, generation europe was mostly a sending country rather than a receiving country for for many years and so like uh most of the immigrants who came to the United States were from Europe in, during this uh, Ellis Island generation. And Europe became a receiving country of immigrants only in the last uh, couple, you know few decades. And so the, the, the work that you will have there will be mostly on the modern period today in terms of like how immigrants do in, in, in Europe. And in the past it will be mostly about uh, how they were doing when they were as they were sending immigrants. And when you do that, uh, you know, for example, uh, Santiago Perez have, have, has done some work on, the, on this uh, age of mass migration in the past uh, for Argentina. And uh, he's, for example, he's looking at Italian immigrants. You know, some came to the U.S. and some came to Argentina. And at that context, he finds that the U.S., was not that special in the sense that italian immigrants to argentina uh, to argentina did just as well in, in fact they were doing uh, you, you know like even perhaps better than the italian immigrants to uh, to the us but this is kind of where you see this a bit disjoint in the sense that europe uh, was mostly a sending country becoming a receiving country so that's why in the europe context you see less of the uh, this long path long long-term historical research
1: let, let me push a bit down um, the conversation in that direction and get a bit meta here and that you mentioned santiago's um work ran and this question on that you can call external validity i guess uh seems like particularly important in economic history right so most of us who are interested in history are people that appreciate context and And um, I guess that the efforts to reach uh, uh, strong causal claims could uh, be at odds at some point with like that, right? So I guess my question for you is how do you think about this in terms of the knowledge generation of the discipline? How are we as economic historians accumulating knowledge and uh, understanding better the world between this tension of having very robust results in a very specific historical context and um, the intentions of knowing like larger lessons from, from history. And here I guess I'm asking you to tell me how do you talk about this with your students, Um, with um, uh, people with whom you, or well, not the people, but when you're refereeing papers, how do you think about this? And I would like to hear the the two of you on on this. Maybe Leah, you you want to start.
2: Sure. Um, I uh, think that as economic historians, um, we need to tackle the big changes in history that create the world that we live in today. Um, So we want to understand um, that there were time periods where women were not in the labor force to the same degree that they are now, and we now see the trends over time and how that's changed. We want to understand that it doesn't go without saying that the U.S. population is 14% foreign-born. That's actually been uh, the immigration level during the age of mass migration from Europe up to 1920, But then the immigration level plummeted. uh, And so only 4% of the population was foreign-born as of 1970. So the world that we see today, um, it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, It was created by many of these long-run processes. And so I think as economic historians, we have to, to tackle the big trends. Whereas when I'm advising labor economists... I think, well, yes, you can study a small policy in a particular location um, and really uh, nail down um, what we think the causal relationships are there and what some of the mechanisms might be because there's a greater chance for rolling out that program, for example, to other locations um, and um, scaling it up and maybe generating some external validity to other similar programs today. But as economic historians, I think our task is a bit different. I think it's understanding the big trends that generate the world that we see here. Uh, So I remember when I first met Ron um, and we were walking in Huntington Gardens, which is a story that we tell in the book, he was telling me about his work on the kibbutz um, and who chooses to leave the kibbutz, which is an equal sharing society, to move to a uh, market economy right next door. And I said, well, that's fascinating as a theory that we could then apply to some of the biggest population movements in world history, too. Um, We can move beyond the case study of the kibbutz to try to understand global migration trends. Um, And maybe who moves from Europe to the U.S. Uh, during this period when 35 million people are moving. Um, so I keep pushing myself and pushing my students to try to look at uh, broader trends um, so that we can make sense of the world that we live in today.
0: And, and let me let me add just uh, uh, another, of course, I agree with, with everything Leah said, uh, but just to say that uh, At the end of the day, as economic historians, you ought to care about uh, whatever you study in its own right. (laughs) So uh, being an economic historian means that if I study the kibbutz or if I study uh, immigration in the United States today or if Elia studies the, you know, like... you know, blacks moving to white neighborhoods, she gotta care about the answer to the question in the historical context that she studies in itself. And that means to not superimpose the thinking that we have today about how people must have felt like 50 years ago when things happened, but rather to bother and learn from the perspective of people who lived at the time, uh, the historians, qualitative evidence, uh, the, the data, how the data was collected, to care deeply about. Uh, how it's interesting in its own right. In this sense, it's, it's uh, you know I guess my, my view is that uh, every estimate that we generate in economics is a local estimate. If you study uh, you know changes in uh, in policies in the United States today, then you generate an estimate that is relevant to the United States between the years 2000 and 2015, and it might not have a huge external validity for China. And so we have to kind of care first of all for 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 what we study in itself, and I think that's in the DNA. Of economic historian, but then, as Leah as Leah said, once you do that and you are comfortable that you generated the, you know, like knowledge that is valuable in the context in which it studies, we can start to think about how really, just like Leah described, how many current problems have historical origins. We didn't just get here today by the chance of uh, by chance, but it has historical roots and history. Uh, can often serve as a, either a natural experiment or, or as intellectual look at a world that doesn't exist today. So, for example, one of our first papers was, well, how would immigration look like in a world without immigration restrictions, when everybody who want to move can move? Well, why don't we look at this uh, Ellis Islander who didn't need a visa or a passport to get into the U.S. and see like, who chooses to move to the U.S. rather than uh, mush between uh, the choices of people and the immigration policy and so on. So kind of gives you a window to a world that even doesn't exist today, but it's a uh, Expand your intellectual horizon if you want of uh, exploring alternative uh, uh, possibilities
1: of how the world could have been. That's that's fascinating. Let me ask you one final question uh, because our time is um, is almost uh, over. And I ask this to all my guests: Why writing a book? Right? Why in the <laughs> discipline that uh, rewards uh, in general much more articles, for instance? Uh, is why in that context it is important to, to write a book. Yeah.
2: Well, first I'd ask why write an article, you know, um, like what are, what are your goals in, um, in your intellectual endeavors, something you should ask for each piece. And when you think about writing a new article, you have to ask the same. Um, do I have um, new data to collect that I want to then describe and share? Do I have um, a, a, a new new finding that I want to probe and and see how robust it is and uh, document that. Um, If that's the project that you're working on now, then probably um, it's time to write an article. But when Ron and I got to this point in our research where we had written a number of articles um, on the age of mass migration, we really wanted to step back and see um, what uh, does our work say about Um, where the U.S. has been and where it's going uh, in terms of immigration policy. Um, And uh, we think that our findings, when put together, um, have a lot of um, insight to share about where we're going next. Um, So at the end of the book, we um, do talk about um, some of, you might say policy implications, but... um, It's not that there's particular policies we say pass this, don't pass that, but more um, a vision um, for what uh, immigration policy should be based on um, for some of the facts that um, should be the basis of making these decisions and um, some of the values and uh, the um, directions that come out of analyzing those facts.
0: You know, it's uh, you imply, and you are probably right that uh, the incentives in in the profession are currently, you know, mostly to to, to write papers and, no, and not to write books. And you know, like uh, maybe when you talk to. Uh, you know, a young person. You know, you would not recommend them to write a book. You know, before they they get tenure. You know, there is a lot of uh, uh, the publica- publishing papers is important, and uh, the publication process is long, and uh, and uh, and so on. But but I guess that there are two, uh, like Leah said, there are. There are- First, you know, like uh, I see two two reasons, I guess, to to write uh, books. One is is a broader audience. So for to Le- for Leah and I, it was important to uh, to reach out beyond uh, talking to other economists, and 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 in this case, beyond even talking to other sociologists and historians. We thought that the questions that we were as- asking are of broad interest to the to the general public, and we wanted to be able to to communicate uh, to communicate with them. And when you write to the general audience, it kind of keeps you honest at some level because it forces you to not uh, hide behind your jargon of the field. That is a group of people that agreed to not question certain mm-hmm. certain things and certain assumptions, and to communicate this <laughs> to the broader world. And when you do that you also find, oh, my book cannot be complete unless we think about some other things. Because, you know, you can write a paper about the effect of X on Y. And uh, if you're asked a question about something else that affects Y, you're like, oh, that's not related to the hypothesis that I'm asking uh, because it's orthogonal to X. But you're like, well, but you can't really write a book like that. The book is about Y. So you have to consider all these things that affect Y. And so it forces you to think more broadly about uh, the outcomes and the phenomena that you are, that you are talking and eventually produce something that, uh, that is like more, uh, bigger than the, just a paper. And that makes one single point and elaborate on a, on an argument. And so that is, uh, uh, the way, uh, And and again, it's not, not every idea lends itself to a book. And, you know, Leah and I took us, f- 10 years before we decided well we think that the whole is bigger than the sum of its parts and now we should write a book you know we first wanted to understand smaller simpler questions that we can that lended themselves to to articles but uh, broader audience and elaborate argument is something you can't really do in a in a paper but the book you can lends itself more to that
1: Well, I'm very glad that you decided to write this book. This is a fascinating book. I had a great time reading it. I really recommend it to all uh, the people that are listening to it. I would like to close with um, one of the praises that um, uh, have been made to the book. Uh, This one is by Angus Deaton. I think it summarizes pretty well um, the contribution of the book. Deaton says, while Americans are intensely polarized about immigration, facts and history can help change minds. And Streets of Gold has the facts, millions and millions of them, about the amazing and often surprising history of American immigration. It is a splendid testament to the power of big data to illuminate our past and what it means for the future. Thank you very much for being uh, with us today.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Javier.